It is a great pleasure to welcome to the program once again James Glick, a distinguished writer who has focused particularly upon science and some of the great figures in science. And he's done that possibly now for the greatest figure in Western science or in human science through all of its history, namely Sir Isaac Newton. I must tell you of a, a little hap or mishap that I had last week. Ran into a graduate student I know at the University of Chicago um, who uh, is to be sure in one of the humanities uh, departments, not in a science department. But she asked me, um, she listens to this program on occasion, and she asked me, what are you doing next week? And I said, well, one that I'm really eager to do is James Glick is coming in with his new book about Isaac Newton. And she looked puzzled and said, who? I said, Isaac Newton, Sir Isaac Newton. And she said, oh, the one who wrote about fishing. He had <laughs> Isaac, Isaac Walton in mind. And I told her, no, that's Isaac Walton. And, the, and I then asked, being a professorial in my mode of sadism, I then asked her, do you know anything about Isaac Newton? She said, well, I guess he was an Englishman. And uh, you must have something to do with it, science? And I said, yes, and smilingly took my leave. What do you make of that? Well, I'm glad I didn't hear too much of that when I was working on the book. Most mm -hmm. people, when I said I was writing about Isaac Newton, at least pretended that they couldn't wait to read mm -hmm. a, a manageable biography of him. I don't know. I, I, actually, I do know what I make of that. What I believe strongly is that all of us, including people who are so uninterested in science and mathematics as to never have heard of Isaac Newton, and I don't think that's many of us, but all of us, including people who aren't interested in science, have a view of the way the world is and, of, and an intuitive understanding of, how th of so much of, our, of nature that is built upon the foundations that Isaac Newton laid. So he is in our heads, whether we know it or not. You wouldn't really understand um, what happened when you played pool. Pool or baseball or any of any of those other activities that involve... Or you wouldn't understand <laughs> why objects. the planets do what they do. We wouldn't understand where we are in the universe to begin with. And, but, but more than that, we wouldn't have... And some, some people think we don't have this, but we wouldn't have a mathematical view of the world we live in. We do have it, even if we hate math and we think we don't know anything about it. We understand time mathematically. The incredible thing is that this young man at the age of 23 and 24 at Cambridge uh, sat down. He was rather given to privacy and a little bit uh, a, a solitary, strange character around the university. He sat down and sort of wrote down some equations in a mathematical language that he had invented, which equations he thought probably gave you the general case for what happens in the physical realm, both terrestrial and extraterrestrial. That's right. Where he, did that come from? He, uh, he, it's an understatement to say that he was a strange and solitary type of person. It's, it's absolutely true. And this, um, this amazing moment in the history of human thought occurred as you say, when he was in his early 20s, and he went home from Cambridge because Cambridge shut down because yeah. of the plague. He was avoiding the plague uh, that's and right. went back well, this is, this is to the, the family this is, farm, as it were. That's right. Back to the family farm in a very rural part of, of England and had a few books about mathematics, which he had not had growing up, of course. There were no books in the house. In fact, his father was illiterate. But here he was alone in, this, alone in the family house with nothing to do for more than a year, 
and he had, this was important, paper. It wasn't obvious that he should have that in this part of England, but his stepfather had had lying around a giant notebook with blank pages, and Newton spent all of his time writing in this book, and what he was writing was mathematics. And before he was done, we see now that he had become the greatest mathematician on Earth. He didn't know that at the time, and no one else knew it because he wasn't sharing his results, but one of the things he did in this period was invent the calculus. Amazingly, having done all of this, and he goes back to Cambridge when the plague threat has diminished, and having got his degree, they make him a sort of a fellow of, uh, of Trinity, uh, which is sort of the leading college at Cambridge in those days, still is in a way. And uh, then he's on the faculty for the next about 30 years, I think. But he keeps Newtonian physics and the Principia Mathematica, well, you write the Principia a bit later, he keeps it all essentially a secret. That's right. It's a, it's, and, and it was partly because of his strange personality, but it was partly because that's the way the world was. And we have to subtract so much of what we know about science and how science works. And all the institutions of science, the journals and the, and the societies and the, all these um, pieces of the scientific establishment that are based on the flow of information. We have to subtract all of that because that world didn't exist. Newton, we see in retrospect, was about to create it, but it didn't exist for Newton and it wasn't to his taste. What was to his taste was doing the work, scribbling on paper and hiding it in a drawer. And what was also to his taste were other questions. He saw this, didn't he, the physics that he developed, as part of a larger and more mysterious realm. Well, that's very well put. And in fact, there was no such thing as physics, and he wasn't thinking about categories of knowledge. He was just working on what interested him and trying to understand everything possible about the world. And in the course of trying to understand everything possible, he became not just a great mathematician, but a great alchemist. Uh, well, now, how could there be a great alchemist since the basic goal of alchemy was to transmute base metals into gold? Well, that's, uh, that is its most notorious and um, unsavory goal, and that, that was certainly true then. That, well, that wasn't necessarily Newton's ambition to, but you to, to create define, gold. You want to define was, alchemy as chemistry, do you? Well, no, I don't, because uh, that, would be, that would be sort of cheating. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can see why I might want to. If you, if you wanted to rehabilitate Newton's reputation, that's a thing you could say. You could say, well, yeah. there wasn't any clear line between alchemy and chemistry, so he was just an early Except chemist. Except that chemistry doesn't involve magical spells. That's right. So, And there's some truth to that. There was no line between alchemy and chemistry. The words were used more or less interchangeably. But alchemy was not a scientific thing the way we understand science. It had all these mystical qualities. It had a... a it, involved an interest in spiritualism and language about sexuality and fermentation and living things and dead things. And um, it had a strong religious flavor. And it also had, as a sort of institution, um, a tradition of secrecy. So there were no alchemical papers published. There were, there were manuscripts that were passed from person to person in clandestine meetings and people using pseudonyms. One sort of sees the scene, at least in Goethe's treatment of Faust, 
but at the beginning, Faust is pouring through these strange, or one remembers the, the line from Poe, uh, volumes of forgotten lore, strange books not available, not known, esoteric, and there are secrets to be discovered therein if only one knows how to decipher. Exactly. That's exactly right. And, it's, and we know it's true of alchemy, but what's really important is to appreciate how true that was of all science, of mm -hmm. all the things. It was true of mathematics, too, for Newton. Newton had this idea of science as partly a collection of forgotten secrets. And it was a time in human history when things that had been known in the ancient world and then lost from the perspective of Europeans were starting to resurface. And so to people who lived in the 16th and the 17th centuries, there was a sense that there was hidden cryptic knowledge that uh, that the ancients had known secrets that we need to rediscover. Would you buy this, that there was science in classical antiquity on the Ionian shore, Democritus, Heraclitus, etc., cetera, uh, Anaximander, but that it's lost and it doesn't really revive until in Europe until, should we say, possibly the uh, 16th century, Bacon, uh, Descartes a bit later, or should one go earlier to uh, uh, to some to Avicenna and some of the Arabs? Where does whatever science is, where does it reemerge? Well, in mathematics especially, there is a there is a continuum. It it did disappear. It was lost, at least if you have this European perspective, and. Uh, some of it started to reemerge because uh, the Arab world was rediscovering things and independently inventing parts of especially mm -hmm. what we now think of as algebra. And, and yet, it's also true that by at least the 1600s, you could say that the ancient Greeks knew more mathematics than, than any culture mm -hmm. after that. After the 17th century, it was no longer true. Uh, largely because of Newton. There's an inevitable question that arises when you talk about great figures in history, and that is, what would have happened if they had been somehow uh, taken out of history, dropped on the head as a child of two and died because of inadequate medical treatment? Um, particularly with regard to science, one could ask, well, but aren't these inevitable developments that would have been achieved by somebody else a decade or so later? Uh, the world without Newton, and how one might think about that is what I raise right now just as we pause for some commercials, then directly back for some meditations on that question from James Glick, author of the new book directly titled Isaac Newton. And we return to James Glick. We are drawing from his excellent new book, Isaac Newton, which is, by the way, just published by Pantheon. Um, so, imagine a world without Newton. Uh, he does get rid of him through the plague. The plague years take him before he sits down at back at the farm to start figuring things out. Would we be sitting here tonight doing what we're doing? <laughs> well, it, this is a great parlor game, and it's so tempting to say... It's oh, a game of counterfactuals. That's right. The world without Newton, we'd be back in the Middle Ages. We couldn't have the radio. We wouldn't have computers. We wouldn't have telephones. We wouldn't have... We wouldn't have rockets. You don't believe that. I don't believe that because I believe the other thing you said, which is science is bigger than any individual. People and, come along and do what has to be done. Yes. And, what is and, and I guess this is another way of saying what Newton discovered wasn't a personal thing. It wasn't a new fashion that he was persuasive about. 
it was the way the world is, the way nature works. And so it's impossible to conceive of a universe that had a diff has a different set of laws than the laws Newton discovered. And it's impossible to conceive of mathematics without the calculus. And it's impossible to conceive of a, of a useful understanding of what light is that doesn't include the things Newton discovered about light. I suppose you might guess that all of those discoveries would have come along a little bit later, but probably done not by one man, but by three or four. Yes, I think that's right, because Newton himself was so extraordinary in combining in one human being so, so much profound work in so many different areas of science and a formulation of the rules by which scientists operate, an understanding of what knowledge is that was new, and and of how scientists need to persuade other people of the truth or falsity of various claims. Let's come to the eventual disclosure of what Newton uh, discovered, a, a disclosure some 20 years after the fact of the discovery. How did that happen? Well, which discovery are you talking well, about? Well, I mean the Principia. I mean the writing of oh, the, the Principia. Principia. Well, this is at a time, now you, you have to imagine Newton, as you've, as you've said, he had now long been a, a professor at Cambridge. Mm -hmm. And you would think that a professor at Cambridge University, the only professor of mathematics at Cambridge. You'd think he'd live by publish or perish. Well, that's right. You'd think he'd have to do that. You'd think at least he would have to teach students. And in fact, he was supposed to lecture students. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, and he did occasionally show up and lecture, and there were times apparently when he was lecturing to an empty room. And then he was required to deposit the manuscripts of his lectures in the Cambridge Library. And, and again, he did this occasionally, though not nearly as often as he was obliged to do it. And he was not unknown to the very small circle of people in London forming the Royal Society who who made it their business to to understand what we now see as as the beginning of scientific knowledge. But except for that, he was basically unknown to everybody and had really published nothing, certainly nothing about what we now see as physics and mathematics. However, it came to pass that one of these smart young men in London, Edmund Halley, who we now know because of the comet named mm -hmm. after him. Who was who became the Astronomer Royal at some point. That's right. And uh, he was a, a great early scientist and a wonderful character. And if I could blast back through time and have a beer with anybody in my book, I think it might be Halley I'd like to have a beer with. He realized that Newton knew some things and got him talking about it and made pilgrimages up to Cambridge to try and pry knowledge out of him and eventually more or less forced him to write what is now the Principia and was its publisher, paid for it out of his pocket. Now, what, what year does that happen? This is around, now you're, it's not fair to quiz me on years, but it's around it's 1680. Years. Yeah, it's about 20 years after he did the work. That's right. Well, yes and no. It's about 20 years after he first formulated, we see now by going back through his yeah. paper, in, in their crudest form, the laws of motion. And after he first had the insights that we associate with the apple. Maybe we'll talk about the the, the, the myth of the apple. the myth of the apple later. But there, there are two great apple myths. One is the, in the Garden of Eden, and the other is the Newtonian. <laughs> is Isaac Newton. But but in some ways, doing the work that became the Principia was a matter of writing the Principia, and he had to, he had to be forced to write it out yeah. to do 
to put together what we now see as this giant system of the world. It's such an elegant, beautiful, self-justifying uh, or self-verifying uh, work. There was a time when I thought I could read it when I was in college and was doing physics. I'm not sure that I could, and it was being interpreted to me as I read it, to be sure. I'm and sure. I didn't read all of it, but it was something that we did in, in physics. Um, I'm sure there are a lot of um, poor f physics students out there who, who were horrified to hear you say how beautiful and elegant it is. But isn't it? It is, but it's also very scary. And, and if you didn't read it, you have joined an enormous club. Yeah. Well, I had a very good professor of physics at Brooklyn College, in fact, who led us through it and explained it. So it was not really a, a solitary, uh, heroic reading. It was an assisted reading. But uh, say something about it and the way it's done. Well, and, and you know, even in, even in Newton's time, when, when this book was becoming famous, there weren't even a thousand copies of it in existence. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, but it was said around Cambridge University when Newton passed by, there goes the man who wrote the book that nobody can read. Mm -hmm. So, so in that, in, there was already the, the precursor of every scientific tome that is renowned for obscurity. But it has, the elegant thing about it is the discovery of, well, it's three basic laws, is it not? It has the, the, the famous laws of motion, Newton's, Newton's laws, and it has... Um, a style that uses geometry to prove things. And uh, starting in the Euclidean way from almost nothing, from basic axioms, Newton creates a system of the world in which he ends up explaining how the solar system operates, why the moon orbits around the earth, and what can you, what can you say about it? Now here's there is a challenge to you. For those who are listening and who know, they've heard about all of this stuff, but they just really don't know what Newtonian physics is. What are those basic insights of his uh, which hold true within our solar system, at least, and, which, uh, and on which all further physical science was constructed? Maybe the most important thing, certainly the most important thing in the, in the Principia, is the discovery of unit, universal gravitation. Now, you have to imagine it's hard for us to imagine a world that didn't understand anything about gravity, but the word didn't even exist in English in this context. It wasn't understood that there was a force that pulls objects down toward the center of the Earth. Well, we know that. But more important than that, and this is Newton's greatest contribution in, in this book, I think, is the extension of the understanding of earthly forces through the entire universe. The recognition that the same force that pulls apples off trees on Earth is the force that, that holds the Earth, holds the moon in orbit around the Earth and holds the Earth in orbit around the sun and controls the moons of Jupiter, which had just become visible in, tel in telescopes, and uh, further allows you to explain the, the motion of the tides, which no human being had ever been able to understand before. And the fact that you can explain all of these different phenomena in terms of a single force and in terms of mathematical laws, that is what revolutionized science. And what is the mathematical law that conveys the, uh, uh, the behavior of gravity, so to speak? Well, you're, you want me to mention the inverse square law, which is the law that tells you how does the force of gravity vary depending on its distance from the center of the Earth or from whatever object is, is causing the mm -hmm. attraction. Before Newton, not only wasn't the inverse square law known, but it wasn't, it wasn't understood that there ought to be such a law. Why would anyone think that 
that the force of gravity varied from place to place. But the law is formulated. It's, the great mystery is how Newton formulated it. Uh, did we have enough observations around so you could empirically deduce the inverse square law from measurements already available? No, that's a, that's really a great question, and and it's a, and it's important to in understanding Newton's story or the the story of any scientist of this time to to remember how crude everything was, how little data there was. For Newton to get observations of comets was well, it was like pulling teeth. He he was engaged in endless battles with the with England's very first astronomer royal, who was, in turn, painstakingly trying to record observations about he heavenly bodies. Data was scarce and hard to come by. And then imagine how you would come up with your own experiments about moving objects in a world where there were no stopwatches. There weren't any watches. If you wanted to time something, you had to resort to some very so, crude approximation. Well, that's one you. you phrase the question, the mystery, wonderfully well. What's the answer to the mystery? Where then and how then did this come to or come through Newton to us? Okay, well, the answer is, uh, I, I hate to cheat, I hate to fall back on this, but it's, the answer is hard to put into a few, into a few words, and it's a major, a major part of the story I tell in, in the mm -hmm. book. And, and it's where the myth of the apple comes into play, because this is of of all Newton's great discoveries, this is the insight that had to come from somewhere in in this world of very sparse available data, and it and yet there had to be data, and it couldn't be created out of whole cloth, and it had to involve a combination of powerful mathematical intuition, which Newton had perhaps more than anyone else on Earth, and some data. There wasn't no data. There was a time when data was impossible to come by, but now we're living in a world where people are writing down astronomical observations and trying to come up with estimates for the size of the Earth. It's hilarious sometimes to look at Newton's frustration with the available data because, because even units of measure hadn't been standardized. So he had to read something that had been written in Italy and translate cubits in Rome or whatever units they were using into into equally crude units that were in use in England. That still doesn't answer the question of well, how it dawns upon him. Right. It isn't merely a generalization. It isn't a Baconian sort of generalization from available data, not fully. No. Well, let me tell a story then, with the understanding that it's that what I'm saying is partly mythological and. Um, there's some basis in fact, but I'm going to simplify now. Imagine that you're Isaac Newton, home from college because of the plague, sitting in your garden, and there's an apple tree. And you can look at an apple, and maybe the apple actually falls to earth. It does not hit Newton on the head, by the way. But an apple has a certain size, a certain apparent size, that's visible. It's visible to Newton sitting there. And in his head, among all the other things floating around, are a lot of Euclidean triangles. He knows a lot of geometry. And meanwhile, there's the moon, also visible in the garden. And it has a certain apparent size, which is actually quite similar to the apparent size of the apple, if the apple is, let's say, 20 feet from where he's sitting. 
and he can see there's a size and there's also an area and he can think about the volume of these two objects and he can think about the weight or mass of these objects except he can't really because these terms are not defined yet there's no such word as mass Newton had to invent that and then if the apple falls he can think about the speed at which it's it's falling and he can also because he had this suspicion now think about the moon and why is its motion what it is and what he knew or suspected was that the moon had a tendency to travel in a straight line but that there was some force pulling it toward the earth and causing it to deviate from that straight line and then the insight that he has to come up with is what if it's the same force pulling the apple off the tree and pulling the moon toward the earth causing it to deviate from that straight line and do we have enough data about how fast the apple is falling he had a little bit and about how fast the moon is traveling again he had some crude numbers and could you come up with a mathematical law for this force that would apply to both objects and he did and it's the inverse square law and he wrote down that if you do the math it looks pretty close he's involved he's got more than two feet he's got five or six feet and they're in different realms though he sees all those realms as related and another one of which we've said nothing yet is theology um, matters of the sacred um, did he as he came to those formulations inverse square uh, reaction and reaction and so on as given in the basic laws of the Principia Mathematica did he see all of this as organized by the great clockmaker by God yes he he fervently believed in God he was a, a very religious man he certainly saw the universe as having been created by God if he was we have a tendency looking back at the birth of science to think of a conflict between religion and God and there's there's the the sobering case of Galileo's run-in with the Inquisition to give us a kind of canonical example of that but but that wasn't the case for Newton there was no tension in his mind between science and God unless we want to project a certain thing which would be he wasn't going to allow God to be constantly interfering with the motions of objects he wasn't going to allow anybody to say well the apple falls because God breezed by and knocked it down or the moon is doing what it's doing because God chose this morning to move it there he wanted to understand a universe in which God's laws operated in a certain way and they always operated that way does God is the great clockmaker he winds up the machine and the machine then functions that's right Newton never never chose that analogy himself no. but that's a very Newtonian way of looking yeah. at it that's that's the way Newton's descendants certainly certainly saw him God is God is the clockmaker yet he was filled with uh, staying in the realm of religion and theology he was filled with agitation over certain basic theological issues we've got some commercials coming when we return we might look at Newton the theologian or Newton the the troubled Christian or and Newton the heretic Newton the heretic indeed uh, and we return to James Glick and to that inquiry after these words and we return to James Glick drawing from his wonderful new book Isaac Newton just published by Pantheon we're just beginning to touch upon Newton as a religionist uh, some 
uh, the newscast is coming in a moment, but let's get a little touch of that before we go to the news and then back to that issue. Essentially, he was a Christian, but he did not believe in the Trinity, which is strange for a man who taught at Trinity College. Uh, that's right. He didn't believe in the idea of three persons in one God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, as equal and divine. If his beliefs had been known, not only would he have lost his job, but he could have been imprisoned. This was serious business in imprisoned? the 17th century. Yes, oh, anyway. this, was, this was heresy. Yeah. And he was passionate about it. It wasn't... And, and I've really struggled, you know, as 20th or, well, now I guess 21st century fellow trying to understand Christianity. I've struggled to, to see why it was so important, why it was so important to him, because it looks like splitting hairs to some extent. But it was important, and I learned a little about it. And I understand at least why he had to keep it all secret. Actually, he was uh, taken with... The old heresy became a heresy, I think, in the third or fourth century of Arianism. Because it was Arian who propounded that Jesus was a mortal man, though the best of all possible mortal men. Well, and Newton was was nothing if not a scientist, and he he spent a lot of time studying the ancient texts. He had Bibles in, in many languages, that is in in Greek and Hebrew, and he had the writings of church fathers in the third and fourth century and tried to understand the politics of what happened. And he believed, and I think there's a good chance that he's right, that the support for the idea of the Trinity that we see in the scriptures now was added in the third and fourth centuries for a purpose. Yeah. He saw that as corruption of scriptures. Added, in fact, at the time of Constantine and at the uh, uh, at Nicaea. That's right. Uh, thus, in the Nicene Creed, which gets rid of all the other heresies and establishes what remained then the core of Christian belief. Right. Until his time Until and his beyond. Time. Uh, we will go to the newsroom for a quick update from Judy Pilak and then directly back to James Glick. The new book by James Glick, who uh, first reached uh, vast national attention with his excellent book, Chaos, of some years ago. We discussed that when it first appeared, related to the then-emerging discipline of chaos theory, and he has gone on not only writing very actively for the New Yorker magazine, for the New York Times, uh, and many other publications, but he's gone on to do many other books, and the newest is directly titled Isaac Newton, and it's published by Pantheon. So we come to his struggles with religion. It was a very large part of his life, wasn't it? It was, because he didn't he didn't have he didn't divide these things he didn't have days or years when he was going to work on science and oh, do science today and theology tomorrow no he saw it as as all part of one mission i think to yeah. understand everything about god's plan and the laws of nature were part of god's plan and it and understanding the truth of of the theology surrounding the trinity was also part of his mission and he thought he knew the truth his version of the truth was what? His version of the truth was that Jesus and the Holy Ghost had a subsidiary existence. They were not in themselves divine. Not, not that Jesus wasn't important, but he wasn't God. He was maybe the son of God. Which is Arianism. Yes, that, that's right. And, and it was, as I said, heresy in his time. And there were a few other people who shared his views. And some of these people, 
I won't say came out of the closet, but they suspected the existence of the others. But, mm -hmm. but by and large, no one knew that Newton held these beliefs until long after his death. You know, I did not know, um, and I thought I knew something about the history of British universities. I did not know that in the uh, late 17th century, century, it was still required for anyone to become what we would call a faculty member at uh, at least Christ College, and probably at all the Cambridge colleges, he had to take holy orders. At all the colleges, that's right. He had to take holy orders. Had to be a clergyman. He had to uh, um, swear to a vow of chastity. Now, actually, Newton himself received a special dispensation from the king at a crucial point, because he would have had to affirm a belief in the Trinity, swear an oath, and he wouldn't have been able to do that, we see now. Um, but the purpose of the English universities was certainly to train uh, to train the clergy. That was their basic function. Go back to the faculty life at Cambridge in the late 17th century. They all had to not only take holy orders but swear a vow of chastity. But Anglican clergymen are allowed to marry. Um, Newton didn't marry, though. We know and, that. But nor did any of the other boys. Is that the case? No, I don't think so. Uh, you couldn't ma you couldn't marry and be a fellow at Cambridge University. Mm -hmm. So that was an extra requirement. Because right. As a mere Anglican clergyman, you could certainly marry and usually did. Right, and not that there weren't fellows who broke the rules, but I'm, so. pr I'm pretty sure that that Newton wasn't one of them, at least where that rule was concerned. There we enter into the personal realm, and of course, uh, the historians of science can be utterly fascinated and spend their lives on Newton. So could psychoanalysts, I suppose. What do we know? of the personality that's coordinate somehow to this vast intellect. Well, we know a lot about Newton, and one of the things we know is how little we know about him. He was very private, much more private than some of the other great early scientists. We know a lot more about Galileo as a person, and and some, we know more about Newton's lesser contemporaries like Robert Hooke, because they kept the kind of notebook in which you say how you felt about things, or what you did, or who you met. And Newton never wrote that kind of thing down. Newton wrote millions of words in his lifetime, but they were all what we would think of as work. There's nothing he, confessional, nothing He doesn't say how he felt, except that creeping into some of the religious writing especially, you can see some feelings about sex, and about dreams, and about struggling with chastity. Um, that give you hints, especially if we're, if we have Freudian inclinations. Well, what hints emerge? What does he have to say, if anything, directly about sex? Does he acknowledge his own sexual needs? There's one place where he talks about, in a kind of how-to way, how do you struggle with sexual feelings? He admits that he has them, and he talks about, you know, what's, what's the best thing to do? Keep the mind occupied with other things. Do work. He talks about the idea that maybe you should try fasting as a way to remain chaste. He doesn't, all, he doesn't offer the cold shower solution. He, he rejects that idea. He thinks that that'll just make things worse. Mm -hmm. I, I don't mean to say that this is a big part of his thinking. You have to really search a, a long way to find anything of this kind. It is, but, it is the general historical consensus that he probably remained virginal all of his life, isn't it? Right. It's a, it's a, it's a, there's a general consensus about it because there's actually a sort of witness, namely Voltaire, the, f the young French writer who arrived in, in London just in time for Newton to die and, uh, and admired Newton enormously and, 
and investigated and actually talked to the doctors who attended Newton at his death and, and wrote down in, in the context of comparing Newton to Descartes that Newton had never had a lover, had never known love. Uh, and he said that the doctors told him that. Now, how the doctors knew isn't completely clear to me. I don't think there is any but, way to assess that as part of a, uh, no. a post-mortem. But apparently Voltaire's readers in the, in the 18th century found it convincing. But certainly everything we know about Newton's personality suggests that he didn't have lovers, and he didn't even have friends the way we understand friends. The big shift in his life, his, his, his adult life is really in two portions, isn't it? The Cambridge years and the London years. What brings him to London around the turn of the century? There is a shift, and it's a shift because at a certain time he becomes a public person, and he moves to London. Um, after the publication of the Principia, and he actually was Cambridge's representative to Parliament for a couple of years uh, during the, the the tumult in English in English history. He actually the, play, he plays a role in the Glorious Revolution. That's right, in the Revolution of 1688, and um, he resisted uh, what he saw as Catholic influences and and favored the kind of political thinking that we that we attribute to John Locke who was a, an a, almost exact contemporary yeah. of Newton's and and who was influenced by Newton and then Newton got a government job namely master of the mint he he was in charge of uh, of making all the money in England pretty cushy job well cushy yes and it it made him a rich man yeah. a really rich man for the first time in his life because because the great thing about being master of the mint at that time in England was that you got to keep a percentage of the money mm -hmm. yes you say in his peak year he earned some 2000 pounds which by the value of money then as compared to now that could have been half a million dollars for all I know yes he made a lot of money doing that and 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 yet it wasn't um it wasn't a sinecure. In a way, his job at Cambridge as a professor was more of a sinecure. He had mm -hmm. to—he was required to do less work as a professor of Cambridge. He took the the mint job very, very seriously. Became a famous pursuer of counterfeiters. That's right. People people who have tried to analyze his personality have made a lot of the fact that he was really vicious in his pursuit of counterfeiters and and saw their prosecutions through personally and made sure that that. that that several of them, or a number of them, were hanged. Um, he he wasn't amused by counterfeiting, and in fact, the master of the mint was held responsible for defects in the money, and he he was on the hook. In the Cambridge years, he's living in his little uh, cell, virtually uh, dining, I suppose, with his colleagues at at times, but probably not every night. That mysterious fellow around the quad. Mostly dining alone. Mostly dining alone. How does his life change when he goes to London? After all, he's now becoming a rather well-known fellow. He is for a while the, is he not the chairman or the president of the Royal Society? Yes. He was president of the Royal Society, and and he became, in 
he used that to be, that position to to really uh, be a, the ruler, the autocrat of English science. He controlled a lot of what people did. Now, but you have to understand when I say that that we're talking about a handful of people, a tiny number of people. English science, we're talking about um, a community that numbers in the dozens, not in the thousands. And it would be a mistake to think that Newton suddenly became a a party goer or a, or a social butterfly. He did have a London establishment, and his his niece, his the the daughter of one of his half sisters, lived with him and led a kind of visible social life. And so there were famous people who who would call on Newton's home, but Newton was still not a social person, and he still didn't have friends, and he didn't go out to the opera. Do we have any sort of character portraits, behavioral descriptions, accounts of him given by the more voluble, more active Londoners? We do, and some of them are less reliable than others. The, there are, because he was by the end of his life, and he lived to be 84, mm -hmm. uh, famous and rich and uh, known to be an important figure in England, he was surrounded by admirers. And so there's the kind of, there's the kind of admiring portrait that you would expect and need to be suspicious of that he is spoken of as being a, an unfailingly kind and moral person and and you can't take that too seriously but there are also people who described him and this is really accurate as being of a very suspicious temperament and a cautious temperament and in fact there was a time when he had what we would now call a kind of mental breakdown maybe a nervous breakdown and even apart from that, he was cruel and angry to his to other famous philosophers. Well, he had two great controversies, at least, which were arguments over priority. Yes, and and there were there are at least three people who he uh, who he detested and fought bitterly well, with. Well, Robert Hooke and Gottfried Leibniz over in Germany. Who's the third? Well, the third I was thinking of was Flamsteed, the first royal astro the first mm -hmm. astronomer royal. Yeah. Who who Newton just fought bitterly with and he and in a way he destroyed Flamsteed he Flamsteed's great project was the publication of a of an atlas of the heavens and Newton took it over and and uh, uh, wrested it from Flamsteed and and hurt his reputation in a serious way hmm. out, out of out of a kind of malevolence and and yet I don't want to imply that Newton was completely in the wrong Newton was uh, on the the meat of the disputes he had with the astronomer royal. Newton was mostly right. So I'm not trying to make him out to be a completely bad guy, but he didn't work and play well with others. The other two big fights, though, were over uh, issues of priority. With Hooke, it was the question of uh, Hooke's claim to have discovered uh, the law of universal gravitation before Newton. And with Leibniz, it was... But this calculus is my invention, <laughs> not Isaac Newton in England. We need to talk about those uh, controversies right after we return from these words. Was there something to Leibniz's claim, that great German philosopher scientist, who said, but I discovered calculus before Newton did. He got his ideas from me. There was something to it, but, it, but, but that's wrong. It's not true that he discovered it before Newton, and it's not true that Newton got his ideas from Leibniz. And Newton, of course, made exactly the same claim about Leibniz. He said, Leibniz discovered it later and stole it from me.
And these two great men went at it through proxies, you know, dueling seconds. And uh, it was an international fight because most of Leibniz's adherents were Europeans, Germans, and and he had French supporters too. And and all of all of the English scientific establishment rallied around Newton because he controlled them. And it was really ugly. And do you want me to say what the truth of the matter was? Of course. Well, the truth of the matter was, it's really possible to say, I mean, there's so many things that I don't know, but I do know this, mm -hmm. that, that Newton discovered first what the essence of what we consider the calculus. And Leibniz discovered independently a lot of what we consider the calculus. And not only that, Leibniz did it better in some ways. Uh -huh. Leibniz created a notation. They each created their own notation. They had to invent this stuff from scratch. And Leibniz's notation is a lot easier to use. And so if you know anything about the calculus now, if you have suffered through a calculus course, it's not Newton's notation you're using, it's Leibniz's. Newton deserves credit I think, for being the first inventor of the calculus, but that doesn't mean so much because he discovered it and then kept it private. He didn't discover it and think, now I'm going to make the world a better place and create modern science, and, and all of the engineers and scientists who follow will use the tools that I've made. He discovered it and realized that he knew something important and hid it. What about the other big fight? Robert Hooke claimed to have first discovered the law of universal gravitation. Right. This was a this was a much smaller fight in a way because the Newton Leibniz fight went on for many years and mm -hmm. involved and involved many people and, and had a lasting effect on on the way mathematics was taught in, in various countries. The the fight with Hooke was every bit as passionate for Newton and it and it wasn't the first run in between these two great men. And it was just as who, who just, was he? Who was Robert Hooke? Robert Hooke was um, he he was the curator of experiments for the Royal Society of London in in the early days of the Royal Society. This being this being a group of of uh, of smart men who got together and and started to act the way we think scientists act. That is, do experiments. They would have meetings and they would bring in demonstrations and and then they would they would send letters. And, and publications about their results um, to a very small group of interested readers. In other words, they were they were the first, they were the the prototype of a scientific society. And it was Hooke, in in these formative years, who was responsible for doing the experiments. And the experiments were things like cutting open dogs to to see how their lungs worked, and uh, all kinds of things involving apparatus, air pumps, and one of one of Hooke's specialties was the microscope. He built not the first microscope, but some early microscopes, and, and was the first person to really uh, write down in a systematic way what you could see under the microscope and try to create theories of what he was seeing. He was a really good scientist who unfortunately didn't know a lot of math. That was, if he had one weakness, that was it. Well, the the, dis the dispute you're referring to came when, uh, after several arguments about the nature of light, he engaged Newton in correspondence again about gravity and about the motion of the moon and maybe the comets and the stuff that, that Newton was 
eventually published as the Principia. And Hooke did have an idea. He did speculate at an early point that maybe it's an inverse square law. If there's a mathematical law for gravity, what's, what exactly is that law? But for Hooke, it was just speculation. For Newton, it was part of a very organized system of knowledge. He really understood why it had to be an inverse square law. And when Hooke started to talk to the Royal Society especially and say, hey, I invented this thing first, Newton got very angry. This is just at the moment when he was writing the Principia and he crossed out all of the references to Hooke's name. Hmm. You know, one is reminded of another great case of true parallel independent invention in England uh, in the middle of the 19th century. I have, of course, in mind Darwin and what's Wallace and, and, and Wallace. And, and really there's something... We really came up with the same basic idea about the mechanism of evolution. Right. And, and one reason for the passion and the ugliness of these disputes was the rules hadn't been written yet. Before you could have plagiarism, you had to have such a thing as scientific publication. Mm -hmm. And you had to have an attitude that, well, if you're a scientist, if you're this type of professional who's, whose mission in life is to discover knowledge, then what you do is you write it down and you get credit for it. This is a modern idea, and it didn't quite exist. That's, what, that's one reason Newton was discovering all these things and not publishing them. What was the difference in the case of Wallace and Darwin? Because um, Wallace conceded rather uh, graciously and said, you probably had the idea first, and I just confirmed that your idea is right. I think maybe part of the difference was the personalities of the men involved, and, and maybe part of the difference was that science was more mature. Yeah. Uh, the, the dispute between Newton and Leibniz was fueled by the fact that there was this lack of publication. And so Newton was able to look at manuscripts that, that he knew existed that, that Leibniz couldn't have seen. And there were other manuscripts that existed, and Leibniz had seen them. But they weren't published. There was no paper trail. There were other areas of scientific achievement, quite apart from his alchemical preoccupations, which took up so much of his time, quite apart from his tortured and deep inquiries into uh, issues of theology and of religious history. He, we said not a word, you mentioned optics, we've said not a word about Newtonian optics, and for that matter, his uh, physical development of uh, improvements in the telescope and so on. Uh, it seems to me that optical science, as we know it, leading ultimately to television and the computer screen I have in front of me, was also assisted by Newton, was it not? Well, that's absolutely right. This is the other really great and influential part of Newton's work. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've, we've really, we've, we've talked without quite saying it uh, about, uh, we haven't, I, I haven't quite expressed the distinction between great things Newton did that we see now in retrospect were important, mm -hmm. and the great things he did that were influential because they were recognized, even if he didn't publish them quickly, he published them eventually. And besides the combination of things that we now call physics, there's optics. And uh, Newton learned more about the nature of light, what light is, and color, than anyone had done up until then. It's curious that somebody else who was playing with that and thought that he had solved the problems of optics or of uh, the nature of light, and particularly the nature of color, was Johann across the ocean, across the, the straits rather, Johann Wolfgang Goethe in Germany. Goethe a little bit later, and, yeah. and he hated Newton's view of light. He considered it 
too rational and and too reductive and uh, had a much more interesting psychological view of light and and Goethe wasn't all wasn't all wrong either I I, ad, I admire the way he wrote about color and and in fact I I I looked at it a little bit in connection with chaos and mm -hmm. mentioned it in 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 that book but but that was a little later and by then the things that Newton had taught the world about color were known to be true and and they are true Newton was right without going into what he was right about because that's another broad realm but a crucial question remains before we go to the phones and I should now invite telephone calls in fact the lines are just open the number as ever is five nine one seven two double zero five nine one seventy two hundred uh, and if you are listening to us on the internet elsewhere at some greater distance uh, on either coast or in another country if you're up quite early at Cambridge at Trinity College and would like to get in on this conversation the best way is via email the email address extension 720 at tribune.com extension 720 one word at tribune t-r-i-b-u-n-e dot com or 591-7200 but a crucial matter we have to navigate, if only briefly, is the fact that there now exists something which is sometimes called post-Newtonian physics. Newton, we're now told by all physicists, um, was right as far as he went, but he was describing reality only in a fairly narrow realm, sort of in the solar system. For that matter, he didn't know um, the ultimate nature of matter, though he talks about matter, its density, its volume, its force, uh, its... Uh, the vectors by which portions of matter interact and how they will lawfully do that all the way out as far as the objects in the solar system. But uh, there's an awful lot Newton never knew. Now we have a post-Newtonian physics which uh, incorporates Newton but sees him as uh, the lesser case. Yes, you put that very carefully and you put it so carefully that I can't disagree with anything you just said. And yet you hear things about you hear things that aren't put quite as carefully. For mm -hmm. example, people often say that Newtonian science was overthrown by Einstein's relativity uh -huh. or replaced by it. And that's going too far. That's not correct. It's, it's still true to say that, that Newtonian science was extended and buttressed by what you're calling post-Newtonian science. Not that Newton could, po could possibly have understood relativity or or quantum theory, and yet there are, I don't want to make too much of this, but if you look in Newton's writings, and there are examples in my book, you can see that he didn't rule out relativity, what the, the elements of relativity, or quantum mechanics. After all, he thought that light traveled as particles, a thing that vanished from physics for hundreds of years until Einstein discovered that mm -hmm. that was, in fact, how light does work. Yes, Newton's laws tend to not work really well at light speed or at subatomic sizes. In the mm -hmm. realm of the very small and the very fast, we say that Newton's laws break down. But, um, but when I talk about Newton as being our in intellectual father, it's not because his particular laws of physics operate so well it's because it's because this was well Einstein said fortunate Newton happy childhood of science 
And that's exactly the right thing to say. This was the childhood of science. Before you could talk about uh, relativity in time and space, you had to understand that time and space were absolutes. They were scientific quantities that you could measure and apply numbers to. And before Newton, there was no clear understanding of that. If Newton were reborn or if, uh, his, his identical equivalent uh, in terms of down to the last fragment of DNA suddenly were to appear, would he be a great quantum theoretical physicist? Oh, God, an another, an the other ultimate horrible parlor game. Hmm. Well, that's a really tough question. And, I, and I, I'm reluctant to speculate, but I do have speculation about it. I do think that what Newton was was not about whatever the particular package of genes is. And you can ask this kind of question about Einstein, too. Yeah. Um, Newton was ex an extraordinary human being and had this <clears throat> incredible mathematical ability off the scale. But we have great mathematicians in our world, and the universe has changed. You can't be Newton again, because we already know the calculus. We already know about the laws of motion. We already have established science. We understand the world in a modern way and not a medieval way. And so the work doesn't have to be done all over again. I would conjecture, though, that he was <clears throat> a man of such high intellect and such uh, strongly motivationally focused rage for, for knowledge, for comprehension, that if the same person were to appear again or something exactly equivalent, he would make tremendous additional discoveries and would be a major figure in contemporary scientific intellectual life. I, I certainly wouldn't argue with that. I'm, I mean, it's, 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 hard to, it's hard to say that someone with that kind of raw mathematical power couldn't achieve great things. And, and in addition to the mathematical power, we have to think about his personality and, yeah. and his peculiar well, circumstances. I have that in mind when I speak of the motivational right. forces, whatever they were. Because we, don't, we don't comprehend them now, but they were something quite exceptional. Right. The fact, I have to think that there's a connection between his need to be alone and his mm -hmm. dislike for social things, his, his lack of comfort with other human beings, and his ability to, to sit for hours at a time concentrating on a single problem of mathematics and keeping it in his head until he could solve it. You have to have not just mathematical ability, but, but a kind of obsessiveness that... Stay away from Oliver Sacks. Do you know Oliver? I have met him. You know yes. who he is? Uh, he's a great man. He's a great man, a fascinating fellow. But he'll tell you, well, it's probably a kind of autism. Well, there are people, I'm not, I don't know whether, whether Oliver Sacks says that about Newton, but there are people who have been using the word autism lately. About Newton? Yes, mm. saying that if you look at the symptoms of certain forms of autism, such as Asperger's syndrome, and then if you write down Newton's personality traits, paranoia, secretiveness, some social failings, you, you get some interesting matches. I don't personally think that's a very useful way to understand. Well, any application of mere categories, in a sense, an evasion of a problem rather than yes, a I penetration. Yes, I think that's right. I think it gives you a false sense of closure. Yeah. But Oliver Sacks is is actually quite brilliant on uh, on what mathematical thinking is yes. and, and yeah. what kind of mind you have to have. And some of his descriptions of that really apply very well to Newton. Uh, we pause for a quick round of commercials and right onto the phones, 
and to the emails. Phone number 591-7200. All the lines are taken at the moment. But if you are trying to get through, try again when we say goodnight to somebody else. And for email, extension 720 at tribune.com. Write on to your contributions after this. And we return directly to James Glick, uh, author of the new book, Isaac Newton. We'll go to your questions for him in just a moment. It is a superb book, rather um, brief. That is just about um, 150 pages or so, um, 171 thereabouts. Um, but um, distilling a vast amount of information, which has been closely studied by James Glick, about um, that book, uh, Oliver Sacks, whom we uh, spoke of earlier. You know, I didn't look at the back of the book. I didn't realize that Oliver had a, uh, a quote here. He says, Oliver Sacks does, in addition to reflecting on Newton's genius, Glick provides a fresh and brilliant portrait of his personality in life, the people who mattered to him, the influences which played on him, and the context of his achievements, giving us a vivid picture of this superhuman yet all-too-mortal man. Our phone number, 591-7200, as we go directly to your calls uh, for James Glick. And here is the first. Hello, you're on the air. Oh, hello, Milt. I wanted to tell you how much I always enjoy your show when I get a chance to listen. And Mr. Glick, I read your book, Chaos. I'm a former psychologist, and I had never read anything about physics until I read that, and I applied it very much, you know, in psychology. Uh, I, yeah, I saw it from that angle. And uh, I wanted to thank you for that. But my question is this. You know, Aristotle and Plato, uh, Aristotle wasn't uh, greatly uh, translated until what the Arab and the Jewish scholars of around the 13th century. And that's as interesting a question to me about the what-ifs of science uh, if Aristotle had been more translated earlier because we come in the West with this Platonic theory uh, you know, that prevailed for so long. And, uh, you know, I wonder if that played into Newton. And also my question is, uh, I think it was Arthur Kessler who said uh, something to the effect, if it was Kessler, that Newton wasn't the first great physicist. He was the last great mystic, and I would enjoy your comments on that. Thank you. Okay. Um those are two good questions. First, about Aristotle. By the time Newton was a student at Cambridge University, Aristotle was the core of the curriculum. Aristotle right. was in, in charge of everything. And, right. and to the extent that there was any orthodoxy taught about such things as motion, it was Aristotle's orthodoxy. And mm -hmm. um, the great thing about it, or the terrible thing, depending on your point of view, was mm -hmm. that most of it was just wrong. Right, I understand that, yeah. Which, which is not to, not to say that Aristotle wasn't a great man. On the contrary, of, of course he was, and, and that would be an even greater biographical challenge. But if you <laughs> want to understand moving objects, Aristotle turns out to be completely useless, because for mm -hmm. Aristotle and, and, and the Greeks generally, motion included things growing or changing... Uh, and right. um, it, and it was not uh, it was not a view of motion that was amenable to mathematics. So so Newton really had to Newton and not just Newton. Mm -hmm. uh, the same thing was happening, of course, uh, 
in France, where Descartes was was rejecting Aristotle, and in Italy, where Galileo was. And mm -hmm. Aristotle had Aristotle was the guy who had to be overthrown. Okay. Now, okay. As for your next question, uh, it was Keynes, and oh. I want to tell you exactly what he said. Okay. But and so what I'm doing is because I want to get the words exactly right and we're on the radio, I'll confess I'm glad you. you are, because it, it, I only paraphrased it, as you know, and uh, I always, I loved the quote, but I didn't have it handy. Right, and so, so I'm actually now reading, because I haven't memorized the quote, but it's, but it's, it's important. And uh -huh. Keynes said this, by the way, I have, to, I have to set it up. He said it in a small, dark room at Trinity College, where there were just a few students around, and... It was in the 1930s, and Keynes had bought up at auction a, a treasure trove of, of Newton manuscripts that had lain hidden for hundreds of years. Nobody had seen them, and, and Keynes was, understand, he was collecting them on behalf of Cambridge, where he felt they belonged, but he was also reading them and learning things about Newton that nobody had known. And what he said was, Newton was not the first of the age of reason. He was the last of the magicians the last of the Babylonians and Sumerians, yeah. the last great mind which looked out on the visible and intellectual world with the same eyes as those who began to build our intellectual inheritance rather less than 10,000 years ago. Oh, that's marvelous. Thank you. It is indeed. We thank you, ma'am, for the call. Thank of course, it's worth remembering who Keynes was. Well, Keynes... No slouch himself. That's right, the, the great economist. Five nine one seven two double zero is the number. Quickly, Chu, another caller. Good evening. Yes, thank you for taking my call. I'll make it short, and I'll my answer off the off. Um, yes, sir. Off my. Was um, Newton a Freemason, and how seriously did he take it? Was it an important aspect of his life? Thank you, and I enjoyed the show. Thank you, sir. Uh, that was a little garbled by a poor cell phone. Was Newton a Freemason? I'm not sure exactly what a Freemason is, but I don't think he was. I, I've never... You don't say he is in the book. And no. I don't remember any such reference. No, so... Well, the Masonic societies were flourishing in England by that time, I think. And But what were they? Well, they are the same Masons who are around today. Right. Well, then I don't think so. 5917200, the number. Uh, you are on the air. Good evening. How would Newton have responded to non-Euclidean geometry? Oh, um, Newton anticipated a lot of elements of non-Euclidean geometry. That is, or, or I should say, Newton was expanding. Part of the power of his mathematics was an understanding of different frames of reference, of different types of curves. Of, okay. uh, he extended mathematics. He really loosened things far beyond uh, F far beyond Euclidean mathematics. So um, he wouldn't have been shocked. He could have handled it. But uh, isn't that like where we are right now in terms of our space exploration and everything else? It's t totally based on non-Euclidean. Yes, but it, but it doesn't matter because the laws of motion uh, still apply. 
And when you try to compute the paths of spaceships and comets and planetary objects, it's still it's exactly Newton's laws that are used to um, to make these calculations, and they apply with a phenomenal precision. That's their that's their power and their uh, persuasiveness. Totally fascinating uh, discussion. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you, sir, for the call. Interesting email here from a fellow who identifies himself as a professor of information and decision sciences at the University of Illinois, Chicago. He says, do we know what Newton did to become professor of mathematics at Cambridge since it was not for the calculus? Sorry if I should know this already, but I just don't recall. No, it's a good question, and, and parts of it are a little bit obscure to me. Um, but here's what I know. First of all, until about three years earlier, there had never been such a thing as a professor of mathematics at Cambridge. There were no professors of mathematics. And then uh, in, uh, in Newton's time, just as he was arriving at Cambridge as a student, there was one professor of mathematics who was Isaac Barrow, the first. And, and he recognized Newton wasn't his student directly that is, Barrow wasn't Newton's tutor, but uh, but Newton did get to know Barrow and borrowed books from him, and they and they clearly talked about mathematics and and they talked about optics also, and Newton helped Barrow with a book that he was writing about about light and optics, and then Barrow, who had other ambitions, turned the job over to Newton, which is which is hard to imagine from our perspective, understanding the modern university, but, but apparently there was no competition around. Do we find in his Cambridge days, or for that matter beyond, well, in his Cambridge days, both as a student and as a professor, do we find any figure who had a strong influence upon Newton, who helped to shape his interests and his, his superb competencies? Yes, well, well, Barrow was one, and, and by the way, I I'm, I'm feeling a little guilty now. I'm feeling that I didn't completely answer that question. There was specific work in mathematics, and I and I, I won't list things now, but but I describe them in the book. And and the work was starting to uh, be passed around in second hand. People would write letters, or Newton would write a letter or answer a question. So it was understood that he knew a lot about how to solve the kinds of problems that mathematicians were trying to solve, even before people knew anything about the calculus, which was still secret. So there's a community, an intellectual community, to which he has, in which he has membership character and to which he has some uh, access, even yes. though he's rather an isolate. That's 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 a, a good way of putting it. And there there are books and there are manuscripts, and they get sent from person to person. Yeah. And then somebody has a copy of a manuscript, and if he wants to keep it and pass it along, he has to get out his pen and ink. Sounds like a these days a listserv on the internet. Well, they didn't have email. The world would have been very different. Yeah, but it, yeah, it has become very different. Uh, we pause for a last round of commercials, then directly back to James Glick. There are one or two lines available on the phones now if you want to reach us. Uh, do try quickly, 591-7200. And speaking of our audio archive, you get to it by going to WGNRadio.com and then clicking on my name, which takes you to the sub-site for extension 720, where you find a number of things, one of them being the audio archive. And if you click on it, you'll find our most recent 
program put up there for listening again or listening for the first time is our discussion last week with Donald Kagan, a professor of classics and history at Yale University and the author of the new book, The Peloponnesian War. And I hereby announce that the conversation we're completing just now with James Glick about Isaac Newton will be up on the archive, I trust, within a week or so. 591-7200 is the number, and you are the next caller. Good evening. Hello, how are you? Fine, sir. Uh, I found this discussion very, very interesting. I've been uh, listening ever since the Cubs won. So um, I was particularly interested in, um, Mr. Glick, whenever you mentioned that uh, Isaac Newton didn't believe in the Trinity, whether he believed more of, I guess, in a one-God um, religion, uh, much like I do. I was wondering if you could you know, discuss a little bit more about that, you know, like, what he did in terms of how he practiced his religion and things of that sort. Well, yes, he believed in one God, one supreme God, and uh, I'm not sure what you mean by how he practiced. I mean, Newton was devout Christian and presumably church-going, and studied the Bible in an intense and scholarly way. Uh, that is. Um, I think it's probably fair to say that he was one of the foremost biblical scholars of his time. And of course, this is a time when the English translation of the Bible was just becoming um, popular and encouraging people to, to, to make intelligent interpretations of Scripture and understand it as a text. Um, but Newton also was involved in, in interesting theological conversations and when I say conversations, I mean by mail, uh, with, with other great thinkers of his day who wanted to know what the connection was between his understanding of the universe and, and our belief in God, his belief in God, I should say. Upon his death, he... Um, did he refuse to take...? Yes, he, that's right. He refused the... He refused the last rites, or, the last rites. or if, that's, if that's the right word for it, because he had these secret heretical mm -hmm. views that made it impossible for him to, um, to do certain orthodox things within the context of, of the Anglican Church, which was Trinitarian in its core. Yes, before it abandoned all belief in anything except social progress, which is... Uh, well, that's another story. It is another story, indeed. In fact, it's interesting, one could speculate as we close, and for only a few minutes. Um, at that time, I think all of the early significant scientists were somehow religiously preoccupied, if not religiously committed. But that has faded away. To the contrary, the difference between science and religion, or the apparent or supposed opposition between the two, has become uh, a... Uh, a commonplace of contemporary discourse. Well, you might say that there's an irony here, and I, I don't want to put it, I don't want to be too cheap about this, but, but a thing that's true is that because science has been so successful in explaining things, religion has lost some of the territory that it owned. Mm -hmm. uh, 
scientists answer for us a lot of very profound questions about the way the universe is. Maybe not the most profound. Maybe there's still some territory that is exclusively, uh, exclusively, uh, r still for religion. But if there was a time when if you wanted to know basic things about what the earth was, what the moon was, what those objects up in the sky were, you had to turn to priests to tell you, and now we turn to scientists. There is still an ultimate question which scientists run away from and which religion must address, and that is, uh, as Nietzsche formulated it, why is there anything at all? Right. And, uh, but for Newton and his contemporaries, there were no clear dividing lines. It was no. uh, understanding morality was uh, of a piece with understanding gravitation. I fear we come to the end of the available time. Uh, the new book by James Glick, Isaac Newton, is one that I'm pleased to recommend as uh, superb reading matter, um, and it is published by Pantheon. Some quick words about programs to come. Tomorrow night, our guest will be Milt Bearden. Who is he? He ran the Soviet Union and Eastern European desk at the CIA at the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union, and he's done a new book uh, which uh, talks about the CIA-KGB conflict in the last years. Uh, of the Cold War. Wednesday night, we talk about the history of the Chicago Federal District Court with Richard Kane, who's done a book about it, and with uh, Judge Marvin Aspen, who is one of the distinguished members of that judicial body. And on Thursday, the well-known mathematician John Allen Paulos joins us. He's played the stock market, and he's done a little book about it, which has some interesting uh, angles to it. Newton was able to figure out the universe. I'm not sure that Paulus was able to figure out the stock market. We're out of time. Our thanks again to our guests. Thanks to all for listening, and a cordial good night.